Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Welcome back to Buried Motives. We are so excited that you've chosen to join us today. Absolutely. And we want to give a big shout out to some people that have been leaving reviews for us. We really appreciate reading your kind words. So thank you, Lady Law and Odalith. As well as Tarek33 and Klaus one And to everybody else who has left a review so far. You guys are awesome. And if you haven't left a review yet, we would love to read your thoughts on our podcast. It helps us out a lot, and we really appreciate it. Absolutely. So go and review us wherever you listen. And another thing that I appreciate is when Melissa gets to tell me her case. So I feel like let's just jump right into it. Well, today I'm going to tell you a case about a dirtbag that refuses to admit any wrongdoing. And I know how you feel about those dirtbags, so we'll see how happy you are about this case when we're done. Oh, I have a feeling I'm going to get riled. You might, because he continues to claim his innocence despite a plethora of circumstantial evidence. Oh yeah, I dislike him already. Mm -hmm. And if I do get a little heated, I'm sorry. That's just my Aries showing through. And her red hair. Let's be honest. (laughs) I am a fire sign. (laughs) But you know how I feel about dirtbags that don't claim responsibility, even after they're caught. It just irks me when they continue to cause suffering with their denials. It makes them even more of a dirtbag. But there's always this little part of me that wonders, what if they really didn't do it? And that's why they're so adamant that they're innocent. When the motive for the crime is hard to wrap your head around, I find myself always wanting to believe their claims because the truth just doesn't make any sense. I feel like that's your kindness coming through to trying to give everybody the benefit of the doubt. Maybe, but the actions of today's dirtbag are so confusing and heartbreaking. Ooh. After I share the facts with you today... I'm curious what you'll think about this dirtbag, but I'm going to get right into it. Okay, let's go. At 4.32 p.m. on November 19th, 2012, Elaine Hall received a message from her ex-husband, Mark Redwine. It read, Elaine, I'm wondering if you've heard from Dylan. I've been trying to reach him all afternoon. Dylan was the couple's youngest son. Elaine had watched him board a plane in Colorado Springs to go to his father's house in Durango, Colorado the previous day. At the time, she had joked with Dylan about him being too big to give her a hug goodbye, and he had run back from the gate to wrap his arms around her. Aww. She didn't know that that would be the last time she would ever see him. That is always so sad when you hear about cases like that. It just breaks your heart, doesn't it? It does, because you just never know when the last time you give a hug to somebody is the last time. It's so true. Elaine quickly texted Mark back saying, Quote, it's really worrying when I'm seven hours away and get a message like this from you. I haven't heard from Dylan today. Where did you leave him or last see him? Elaine and Mark had previously been together for 18 years, and they had two sons together. Corey had joined them in November of 1991, and Dylan Nicholas had been born on February 6, 1999. The couple had married in 1991, and the relationship was always a little rocky. They each brought baggage into their relationship. Mark had been married previously and had two children from his previous marriage. 
Now in his second marriage, the faults of his past relationship kept resurfacing, and Elaine and Mark each blamed the other for the problems that they faced in their relationship. Mark would later say about his ex-wife that Elaine was too career-driven, missing out on her children's lives because she was money-hungry. Elaine would respond to the criticism by describing Mark as an alcoholic who was a compulsive liar that couldn't be trusted or relied on. Mark would fling back that she too was a drinker and used drugs. And on and on the accusations would go. Ooh. It was not a happy marriage. And definitely not a happy divorce. And I think it's always so sad when a marriage breaks down to this point. The people who had once had enough reason to get married in the first place can barely be in the same room as each other. And this really seemed to be the case with Mark and Elaine. That is so sad. The marriage eventually came to an end and they separated in 2005, shortly after moving. And a bitter custody dispute ensued over their two sons. Yeah, they would have still been little at that time. Yeah, their older son, Corey, was 14 at the time of the separation. And he had firmly sided with his mom. He still had a little bit of a relationship with his father, but it was very on again, off again. The two frequently got into arguments that would result in their relationship going through a period of no contact. The custody battle over Dylan was still ongoing in November 2012 when the 8th grader had boarded the plane to Durango on a court-ordered visitation. Ooh. Originally, the family had settled into a less formal shared custody agreement in 2007 when the divorce was official. Because Mark worked out of town, Dylan stayed with his mom for the majority of the time but Mark was always given the opportunity to see him whenever he was back from work. Elaine and the boys had moved out of the family home, but had always resided within driving distance, about 30 minutes from Mark's house, so it was relatively easy for Dylan to go back and forth between the two of them. In 2011, the arrangement had to be revisited, though, because Elaine became engaged to Mike Hall and wanted to move to Colorado Springs. Ooh, so things have to change a little bit. She was starting a new job and the next chapter of her life. Unfortunately, this meant that the distance between Dylan's parents was a lot more than the 30 minutes it had been in the past. And so a new, more formalized arrangement had to be made. Right. While the battle was ongoing, Elaine did move to Colorado Springs in the summer of 2012 and filed an emergency motion to enroll Dylan into school. Later that September, Elaine was named the primary custodian of Dylan based on his preferences and testimony given to the court. The custody hearing was still ongoing because custody payments still had not been finalized when he boarded the plane. There was no love between Elaine and Mark as they fought over Dylan and slung accusations at each other about not having Dylan's best interests at heart. It is nice when the children are old enough to have their opinion taken into consideration. Yeah, it is. And in this case, Dylan had chosen to stay with his mom. And we're going to get into some of the reasons of why he had chosen that. But before you get any ideas about the motive for Dylan's disappearance, let's go back to that dreadful day when Elaine got the call that Dylan was missing. On the evening of November 19th, when Elaine got the message about Dylan being missing, she, Corey, and her husband Mike drove to Durango to help search for Dylan. Elaine had an overwhelming sense of foreboding. After Mark said he went to the Bayfield Marshal's office and Elaine had called the Sheriff's Department and learned no report had been made there yet for her missing son, the fight between the two parents continued. Oh, I can only imagine. Elaine sent the following text to Mark. Quote, he wouldn't just leave. He would have called me. I am so suspect of you right now. How could he just disappear? Mark shot a text back that read, it's just like you to blame me. 
right now the best thing for him is finding him. An hour later, Mark sent the following text. Quote, I just spoke with the deputy. His fishing pole is missing and the deputy is on his way up. He asked that I search the property, which I will do now. I know this is difficult, but we gotta believe he is okay. Hmm. It would be a parent's worst nightmare to have your child missing and the night closing in as you frantically searched for them. Well, and to be fighting with your ex-spouse about it too. That's just going to add extra stress to it. You're not working together. It would be overwhelming. It would be. So Mark is saying that Dylan did arrive there, but then went missing. Right. Okay, so we know he got off the plane fine. He did. Mark is saying that Dylan went missing the next day. Okay. Elaine arrived in Durango around two in the morning and immediately went to the police station for an update. And how mad would you be to find out that he hadn't made that report? Oh, she was fuming. Yeah. And like she said, she was so suspicious of him right away. I think what had happened, though, is that in the small town of Durango, there's a marshal's office and then there's the deputy's office. And he had went to the marshal's office and she had phoned the deputy's office. Oh, so it wasn't like he hadn't actually reported him missing. No, there was a little bit of a lag between the two departments speaking together. Okay, gotcha. Mm -hmm. But immediately she thinks that there's something wrong with the situation. Right. She's jumping to a conclusion. Mm -hmm. Which is often the case when you have ex-spouses. Yeah, there's a little pre-existing animosity there. Right. She immediately implies that something must have happened between Mark and Dylan. She doesn't just believe that Dylan would run off and wouldn't contact anyone, her or any of his friends. At 13, he was pretty attached to his phone and always responded quickly to text messages. She hadn't heard from him since the night before when she had asked him if Mark had gotten him at the airport, and Dylan responded with a yes and a frowny face at 7.06 p.m. She had texted him later at 10.09 and hadn't received a response but didn't think too much of it. Dylan had had a long day. He had been at a friend's sleepover the day before and had stayed up till 4 a.m. And then had been traveling most of the day because he had a connecting flight through Denver to get to Durango. Now, his lack of response, though, seemed very ominous. More ominous to Elaine because she knew that Dylan did not want to go to his dad's house in the first place. And it was a little bit more than just the sullen teenager not wanting to sit around bored at his dad's rural property. Oh, and then, you know, mom guilt would totally kick in. Mm -hmm. Dylan had been having some difficulties with Mark on a few of his visits leading up to this Thanksgiving Day visit, and he didn't want to go. So much so that Elaine had contacted her attorney to find out if there is any way to get out of the visit, explaining that Dylan was uncomfortable with going. Her lawyer advised her, though, that if she didn't send Dylan, then she would be in violation of the court order from September 21st of that same year. Oh, that would be so heart-wrenching to send your child on a plane knowing that they really did not want to go. Right? And remember, this is a child that's old enough that the court is taking his opinion into account. Yeah, just not enough. It would be so hard. Even more so now that he's missing. Elaine had sent Dylan off on the plane, encouraging him to still have fun at his dad's house. Ironically, Dylan's first flight to Durango had been cancelled on November 17th, almost as if it was an omen that he shouldn't go. Elaine had been peeved with this because Mark had informed her that the plane had been cancelled on November 17th. 
She had driven all the way to the airport just to find out at the check-in counter that the flight had been cancelled hours before and that the airline had sent out email messages to the purchaser of the ticket, Mark. Oh, what a dirtbag. Yeah, that's just rude. It is. Dylan had used the extra night, though, to hang out with friends and have a sleepover. There he was not shy, sharing with his friends that he did not want to go to his dad's. He had previously told his girlfriend that his dad had kidnapped and abandoned him at one point. And although the friend didn't share any of the details in her testimony, she did recount that Dylan seemed fearful of his father. And I think Dylan could have been referring to the time in 2003 when Mark had been arrested for assault, child abuse, menacing, and trespassing. For the altercation, Mark had arranged a deal to plead guilty to just disorderly conduct. But there had been an incident where Mark had tried to take Dylan before and then left him. That's a huge red flag. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, but if you were going to be charged with child abuse and kidnapping, why is there even a court order saying that Dylan has to go visit him? It does seem off. Yeah, that kind of thing really frustrates me because at that point in time, you're worried more about the father's rights and what he wants than maybe what's best for the child. Right. And it should always be the best interest of the child put first. It should be. And Dylan did not want to go to his dad's. Going through Elaine's mind, too, was the situation that she knew about that involved some photographs that Dylan and Corey had seen on their dad's computer the year before. That's when Dylan had really started to pull away from his dad. In 2011, both Corey and Dylan had gone on a road trip with Mark to Cleveland, Ohio, and then Detroit for Father's Day visiting different baseball fields, watching games, and catching NASCAR races. The trip was progressing much like their other ones had, until one day at the hotel, when Mark was sleeping and Dylan was playing on Mark's computer. On his dad's laptop, he found several photos with his dad dressed in women's lingerie and in a diaper with what appeared to be feces in it. <gasps> in some of the photos, Mark has feces all over his face. No! They see their dad in a poopy diaper. Yes. Eating the feces. What appears to be eating the feces. Get out. Now I have to show you the pictures. Oh, she's going to traumatize me here, you guys. <gasps> Melissa! No! That's a hundred times worse than I thought it was going to be. He's like sucking on a poopy diaper. It is a little unusual. No, unusual <laughs> is not the word. Okay, you guys, these pictures just blew my mind. They are very graphic. I don't know if I have enough words <laughs> to accurately describe what I just saw. He is almost sexualizing, sucking on and licking and smearing this poop all over himself. I cannot imagine these poor boys coming across these kind of pictures of their father. It would be so difficult to process as a 13-year-old. Yeah. I don't even care about the lingerie he's wearing. It's what he's doing with this diaper. So what he has is coprophagia, or the practice of eating your own or another person's feces. And it's a known sexual fetish. Is this why they divorced? No. Nobody knew about these fetishes. Coprophagia is often a component of the wider term coprophilia which refers to getting sexual pleasure from the excrement of human feces, whether it's from the smell, touch, taste, or sight. Scat is another term for feces. 
and scat sex or scat play refers to using scat in sexual activities. Like Albert Fish, Mark Redwine got off from playing with feces. It was one of the many sexual fetishes that he was exploring, unknown to anyone around him. And this gives a whole new meaning to the term sexual appetite. Some people have really different fetishes. And where did he get that? Is that his feces in the diaper? Did he steal a diaper from a mall bathroom or something? No, it appeared to be his diaper because there's one photo of him wearing the diaper and you can see the brown staining in it. Oh, I don't even like getting like ground beef when I'm making hamburgers in my nails, let alone poop up my nose. Yeah, this, I can't wrap my head around it. And neither could Dylan. He was so disturbed by what he saw that he could barely contain himself when he found the pictures. Did he show his brother? He did. Corey had been outside the hotel room talking to his future wife. And when he came back in, Dylan immediately motioned for Corey to come into the bathroom with him. And he showed him the photos. In disbelief, Corey snapped some photos of the laptop screen onto his phone. Oh. Afterwards, though, they didn't say anything to their dad. And I honestly, I don't think I would either, because what do you say if you found these photos? They are so disturbing. You say, what the H-E double hockey stick, dad? Well, I don't think I would have said anything. I probably would have done the exact same thing and pretended it never happened. Yeah, honestly, until you're in that kind of situation, you don't know what you would do. No, but both these boys, they couldn't process it. So they just did not say anything at all. Mark didn't learn that his sons had seen these photos until the following year in August of 2012. How mortified would he have been? Oh, he had kept this life secret from anybody who knew him. And the last person you would want to find out about any of your kind of kinks is your children. Right? And so this would have been super mortifying. You would never look at your dad the same way. And Dylan didn't. From the time of his visit in 2011 to this August visit in 2012, Dylan's visits had gotten less frequent. At the end of July, Mark had enticed Dylan to come for a visit to go on another road trip with just him and Dylan to Boston to see a baseball game. Dylan loved baseball. Mark even tried to make the trip more appealing by taking Dylan to open his own bank account, which he put money into for him. During the road trip, Mark started to lecture Dylan about what a bad influence Elaine and Corey were on him. Well, that's never cool. I don't care what happens in your relationship. You don't bash your child's other parent. No, it's never a good thing to do. But it did seem in this situation that both parents were going back and forth and weren't very supportive of the other. At this time, Corey and Mark were not seeing eye to eye. There had been an argument over Corey using his dad's house while Mark was out of town working and leaving the place all messy. This had blown up between the two of them, and now they weren't speaking to each other at all. Dylan, though, did not take too kindly to his dad badmouthing his brother or his mom. Dylan was described by his close friend Amanda to be fiercely loyal and willing to stand up for those that he loved. That his dad was attacking his mom and his brother was a point of contention, and Dylan wanted to strike back. After Mark was giving Dylan this lecture about his brother and his mom being a bad influence, Dylan texted his brother Corey, giving him a heads up to clean up the house because Corey had been using his dad's house while he was away. And he sends Corey the message on August 4th, 2012 that reads, Hey, send me those poop pics of Papa because he gave me a speech about you guys being bad examples and I want to show him what he really is. Ooh, You can see how this would seem like a suitable response 
for a 13-year-old. Oh, absolutely. He was going to shove those pictures in his dad's face. Yeah, if you're going to bash my mom and my brother, then I'm going to put you in your place. Right. Corey didn't respond to his brother's request until 11 p.m. that night. He told him he was trying to find them, but his email had gotten wiped. Later, he would say that he had purposely not sent the pictures because he was worried about what his father would do if Dylan confronted him with those disturbing photos. That says a lot just even right there. Mm -hmm. But Corey had no trouble confronting his dad with the photos himself and making sure he got in his two cents about who really was the bad example the next day on August 5th. It looked like the conversation started over the pictures that Mark had taken of the mess Corey left behind at his house. And Corey told him, I've got pictures of my own too, revealing the images he had taken of his father in a diaper with feces on his face, telling him, quote, you are what you eat, and calling him (gasps) nothing more than a sperm donor. You are what you eat. Whoa. Honestly, I don't know if you could come up with a better comeback than that. Or to make Mark more rageful. Yeah. This relationship with this dad has broken down so much with the kids that there is no way that those kids should have to be seeing him. It is surprising. Yeah. Mark immediately asked Corey not to hurt Dylan and that if Corey loved Dylan, he wouldn't hurt him. So did he mean like hurt Dylan by showing him these pictures? That's what I believe. Mark has never officially offered an explanation for these messages, but it does seem like he was implying that if Corey was going to make an issue of these photos, that it would hurt Dylan and the relationship that he had with his father. So he didn't even know that Dylan was the one that discovered them. No, he didn't. For Mark, his deepest, darkest secrets about his sexual preferences that he kept very private had now just been revealed to his one son. And I think it's understandable how devastating this would be to all of them. Oh, absolutely. Because if you have that fetish, that's your fetish. If you're doing that and it's not hurting anybody else, then fine. It's not hurting anybody. So if that's what you want to do, then go do it. Mm -hmm. But I can see how this just puts everything on an escalated level now that the children know. Right. And there's so much contention already in the family. Right. And even though the boys had known about the pictures for a while, it's always a little bit more different when somebody knows you know. It's somehow harder to ignore than it was before. And they likely would never have said anything had Mark not lashed out at everybody else. Right. After this trip, tension in the relationship with Mark and Dylan and Corey increased. Dylan starts to side solidly with his brother and his mom. After this is when he told the lawyer during the custody hearing about the photos and said that he was now uncomfortable being around his father, who he regarded as creepy. He told the lawyer. Mm -hmm. So now the mom knows everyone knows. The mom knew because the boys had already told them about it. And this conversation was between the lawyer and Dylan. So it wasn't like in a public hearing. Oh, okay. After the custody hearing, Dylan had stopped responding to any of Mark's text. The contention between his family was all getting to be too much. And he was still having difficulty processing these photos that he had seen of his dad. There are some that believe that Dylan planned to confront Mark about the photos during the Thanksgiving trip in person, but didn't want to talk to him until he had done so. He told his mom that he didn't respond to his dad's texts because he didn't feel like there was anything to talk about. Mark blamed Elaine and Corey for Dylan's silence. That Dylan wasn't communicating with him was a blow to Mark. Dylan was the youngest of his four children and the only one that he still had a continuing relationship with. Although, as Dylan got older, the relationship was becoming less and less close. 
And that is really sad because honestly, his sexual fetishes has nothing to do with his relationship with his children. No, it doesn't at all. Mark had felt that Dylan was different than his other children and was special and that they shared a special bond because he had been the primary caregiver when Dylan was small and Elaine was working and supporting the family. When Dylan was little, Mark claimed that they were inseparable and that he loved the one-on-one time that he had gotten to spend with his youngest son. It was a relationship that he became more invested in as the relationship with his three older sons deteriorated. He was always talking to his friends and his girlfriends about how important it was for him to be a father and how much he enjoyed spending time with his son. And perhaps Mark's identity as a father was more important to him because of his upbringing. Mark Allen Redwine was born Mark Allen Whittington on August 24th, 1961, and was raised by a single mom in his early life. He described his mom Phyllis as a woman that was always looking for someone to look after her. She eventually found that in a naval officer with the last name Redwine. Mark said that his stepfather was a strict man, and not one that he would consider a warm father figure. He and his brother David were often knocked about if they didn't follow the regime laid out by their stepfather. No back-talking their mother, no discussions at the dinner table. Like children should be seen and not heard type of thing? Absolutely. Mark said his stepfather was of the belief that children were to be seen and not heard. And he claimed that this was not the kind of father he wished to be. But he adopted the two boys and that's how they got his last name? No, he never adopted them. As a teenager, Mark, by his words, was unruly to the point where at the age of 16, His mother sent him to live with his biological father, James Lee, because she could just not handle the teenager anymore. And this was the first time Mark had ever met his biological father. (gasps) At 16? Mm Mm-hmm. She just shipped him out? Yeah. And said, good luck? Yeah, I can't handle you anymore, so you need to go someplace else. He said his dad tried to win him over by buying him a new car, and that as a 16-year-old, this was awesome. But the two were never very close. Well, no, he hadn't been in his life for 16 years. I find it interesting because the tactics that Mark uses to get Dylan's attention later on are very similar. He spends lots of money taking him to all of these baseball games. He sets up a bank account for him. Like He's trying to lure him in with the idea of money and things too. Right. Even though he knew for himself it didn't work for him. That's right. It didn't make the relationship any closer. No, you can't buy love. No. The move to his dad's house didn't straighten Mark out. He was soon drinking more and getting into more trouble with the law. I believe it was in his 20s when he was arrested for burglary. It gets a little confusing because around this time, he changed his last name to Redwine, his stepfather's last name, even though he was never officially adopted. Was he doing it to get back at his biological dad, do you think? I don't know. He never gives any reason for why he officially changed his last name. Huh, that's interesting especially to the man's last name that he wasn't overly close with. No, who was actually banging him around and not a good father figure. Right. But maybe it had more to do with him getting into trouble with the law and starting over again. Oh, that could be. I don't know. For some reason, he changed his last name. I think there is the potential, though, from his past for Mark to have developed a skewed version of what a father was. Oh, yeah. He hadn't really had a true father figure. Right. But he had developed this dream of becoming this wonderful father himself. By 1982, he had met Elizabeth Jean Horvath, who went by Betsy. They were married in 1984, and they had two boys, Brandon and Mark Allen. Betsy and Mark divorced in 1990 after just six years of marriage, and Mark had little to do with his sons after that. 
<laughs> after he vowed that he's going to be a good dad. Mm -hmm. This, along with Dylan's attitude towards his dad, could have led Mark to feeling the sting of the custody battle even more harshly, though. As Dylan grew, the relationship with his dad, Mark, changed and their visits became less frequent as friends and other interests started taking precedence in the preteen's life. By 2011, the majority of Mark and Dylan's visits were centered around road trips where they would travel to different cities, no matter how far away, to see baseball games and NASCAR races. Well, it seems like Mark was maybe desperate to make this last one work. Mm -hmm. To Mark, this was a fun way for both of them to bond over their shared interest. Dylan and Corey both loved baseball and Mark loved NASCAR. At times, Dylan would visit his dad's house in Vallecito, just outside of Durango, and there he would enjoy riding quads and visiting his old friends, because remember they had lived there before. Mm -hmm. Mark said he didn't really mind that Dylan would spend the majority of his time with his friends during his visits because he knew how important Dylan's friends were to him. Mark didn't really feel that he was in competition for his son's attention. Instead, he felt that the real competition was his ex-wife Elaine and his other son, Corey. Ugh. It is obvious Mark believed that both Elaine and Corey tainted Dylan's opinion of Mark and poisoned Dylan's feelings towards him. He felt they slighted him whenever he wasn't there to defend himself and then spread lies about him. So instead of looking introspectively, he's just putting the blame. Yeah, on Elaine and Corey. Yeah. And it's hard to say if this was actually going on or if it was all just perceived. But judging by the custody battle and the lawsuits filed after Dylan's disappearance, there might have been a lot of comments flying around from both parties. It appeared that Elaine and Corey's backhanded comments might have been a little bit more covert, while Mark seemed less able to hide his true feelings. In interviews, he comes across as this woe-is-me kind of guy. I'm just trying to do the right thing here, but there are big disingenuous vibes that you get while watching him. In researching this case, I watched all 15 days of the trial, plus countless interviews that Mark has given. And when watching his mannerisms, something just does not sit right. Just kind of arrogant? Yeah, he comes across as a guy that is trying to tell you a story. He's trying to make you think that he's this good, nice guy, but he never is really telling the truth. Mm. Because it all sounds like too good to be true. And he backtracks a lot when he talks and it just seems disingenuous. And I think most people would get that kind of vibe from him is that he's trying to present an image to the outside world that really isn't him. Mm. But I do believe that the mudslinging was going both ways in this custody battle. That's really sad. So shocking how cruel we can be to one another. On November 19th, when alerted to Dylan's absence, Dylan's uneasiness over the trip was foremost in her mind. Elaine couldn't help but think the worst. She starts replaying everything over in her mind. Elaine recalls that on November 18th, she texted Mark at 5.44 p.m. to see if Dylan had arrived at the airport when he didn't respond to her questions if he had landed yet. Mark jokingly or facetiously tells Elaine, nope, didn't show up. When asked if the plane was delayed, Mark tells Elaine, don't have the flight info, waiting to hear from him. Elaine tells him to head to the airport and pick up their son. There is no official record of her actually sending all of the flight information, just the landing time. And so I think he was kind of getting back at her for her being angry over him, not telling her the previous flight was canceled. What a selfish dirtbag. Yeah, they're just going back and forth, but he has to take it to the next level. So he's purposely making his son wait at the airport until he calls him. Yeah, he will take a dig at his ex-wife 
at the expense of his son. Right. Who he claims to love so much. Mm -hmm. But he's putting his own selfish little needs ahead of his son's. Absolutely. Dylan lets his mom know that he had just landed at 549. And Elaine responds, quote, Oh, good. I was worried. You're very late, but glad you are safe. And then added, quote, make your dad wait. <laughs> yeah, that's not okay either. No. That's what I say. It was going back and forth. Dylan responded to her jib with, quote, yes, after all of our waiting. <laughs> so he's playing into his mom's yeah, side. Which moms, we really shouldn't be doing that either. It's so difficult, though, when you're so angry to control that anger. I know, but you never should pit your kids against your spouse. No. It's obvious through these interactions that there was a lot of tension between Elaine and Mark and that it was spilling over to Dylan. Oh, yeah. These, along with Dylan's frowny face response, were among the last messages that Elaine ever received. Oh. After the police were notified of Dylan's disappearance, Mark walks them through what happened after Dylan arrived at the airport. Mark picked up Dylan at the La Plata County Airport, stopped off at Walmart to pick up a few things because he had just returned from work himself, and then the two stopped at McDonald's for dinner because Dylan turned down the idea of a sit-down restaurant. It was pretty clear from Dylan and Mark's reactions caught on surveillance footage at the airport and Walmart that things were pretty cold between the two of them. There was next to no interaction. Dylan's lack of enthusiasm to spend any time with his dad is also evident in Dylan's request to his friend Ryan Nava to spend the night at his house before he had even landed in Durango. Plans the two friends had made to stay at Ryan's grandma's house were squelched, though, by Mark, who later explained that he had said no because he felt like Sunday night should be a time for family. Mark, from the very beginning, is defensive of anybody suggesting that Dylan's attitude about spending time with him was hurtful towards him. He droned on and on about how he respected that Dylan's friends were important to him and that they had always had a mutual understanding that they each had their own things to do. When Dylan learns that he can't sleep over at his friend's house, he immediately asks Ryan if he can come over at 6.30 in the morning. Oh, he seemed pretty desperate not to spend any time at his dad's house. Yeah, I'd say. Ryan would later testify that it wasn't super unusual for them to get together so early during visits in the past when they were younger. But several others, including Mark and Elaine, say that as a teen, Dylan was becoming a night owl, texting and playing on Facebook till late into the night, and was pretty difficult to get up in the morning. Pretty typical of most teenagers, I know. Well, I was just going to say, most teenagers do not make plans for 6.30 in the morning. No. Back at the house that night, Mark says the two of them watched the movie Adventureland that they had purchased at Walmart, tossed a Nerf football around the living room, and just talked about small stuff, like how Dylan was adjusting to his new school and what they wanted to do for Thanksgiving. Mark had just returned from the oil fields in Silver City, New Mexico, and hadn't made any plans for Thanksgiving. I don't believe that. I do think it's super suspicious that here's a dad that says he just loves to spend time with his son. He goes and plans these elaborate trips and then he has him for Thanksgiving. He's been looking forward to seeing him for two months and then doesn't make any plans for Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving in the U.S. is a pretty big holiday. Yeah, his statement seems fishy to me. It doesn't seem right, does it? No. And if Dylan didn't even want to sit down at a restaurant to have to interact with his dad that long. There's no way he's throwing a football back and forth and just talking about life. It all seems a little fishy. Mark said he wanted to find out what Dylan wanted to do and told the police that they had discussed visiting his brother David, which was some distance away, 
or the two could stay in town and Dylan could invite friends over to an activity like a movie or the casino. The casino? Yeah. (laughs) This was the first of many statements that Mark gave that I went, what? Who takes kids to a casino? And he had just denied him going to a friend's sleepover because Sunday was a family day. (laughs) But he's expecting all of Dylan's friends to come over on Thanksgiving? And go play blackjack? Yeah. Or the slot machines? It doesn't make a lot of sense. No. But that is what he told police. After that Thanksgiving discussion, he says that he went to bed around 10 p.m., leaving Dylan to sleep on the couch where he normally did. He assumes that Dylan didn't stay up too much later because Dylan had had a late night before. But he didn't really see him off to bed. He just left him to continue playing on his electronics, which he had been doing throughout the evening. Now that I believe, that he was playing on his electronics. That seems more believable. When Mark woke up the next morning around 5.30, Dylan was sleeping on the couch and didn't want to get up. So Mark left him sleeping while he drove into town to run some errands around 7 a.m. When he returned to the house around 11.30, Dylan was gone. He said he noticed a cereal bowl on the counter and assumed that Dylan had left to see some friends, or had went down fishing, so he took a nap. When he woke up, he went to Dylan's friend Tristan's house at 4.10 looking for him. Mark texts and calls Dylan a few times throughout the day, but never got any answer. Nobody that messaged Dylan after 9.37 p.m. on the evening of November 18th ever got an answer. Shortly after that, Dylan's phone was assumed to have been shut off or the battery died because no more activity was ever recorded from it. Oh. When police and search and rescue set up at Mark's residence the evening of November 19th to start searching for Dylan, they focused their efforts on the lake and the dam that were south of the property. Because Mark points out that Dylan's fishing pole is missing, it's assumed that Dylan went fishing and that's where they start to focus their search on. When the dog handler for the search and rescue team asked for something with Dylan's scent on it, Mark said he had nothing. Everything Dylan had brought with him was gone. The search and rescue person found it odd that there wouldn't be anything left at all. He asked about where Dylan had slept the previous night, and Mark pointed to the couch and some pillows and blankets that were still there. Pillows that have been slept on are usually very good sources of scent, so the search and rescue handler asked for the pillow. Oddly, though, the train scent dog couldn't pick up Dylan's trail reliably, so the search had to continue without the dog being overly helpful. That night, as search efforts went on, Mark stayed at his house, claiming to stay out of the way. Around 11 p.m., search and rescue workers noticed that all the lights in his house went out. It appeared that Mark had just gone to bed. What? This was considered very unusual behavior by trained personnel. Highly suspicious. I'm sorry, your child is missing. You're frantic. What can I do? You want to help. You are not going to settle enough to just go to sleep. Right. And that pillow, to me, is proof that Dylan never did get to go to sleep that night. Exactly. What you're picking up on is exactly what everybody else was picking up on, too. The search and rescue team thought this was very unusual behavior. It's common for family of missing individuals to always leave an outside light on for their loved one. Either consciously or subconsciously, it's sort of a beacon for their loved one to come home at night. Yeah, it's welcoming. Right, here's our house, and he's out in the woods in the forest, and so you'd want to provide a light if Dylan had gotten lost in the forest. At Mark's house, though, all the lights were turned off, as others searched for Dylan. How do you go to bed like that? Well, you go to bed like that if you've been up the whole night before. Or you already know exactly where your son is. Mm -hmm. 
The next morning, when the search resumed, Mark was noted again by investigators and searchers to display some really unexpected behavior. As others searched, he settled in with a coffee in a lawn chair to watch from his front lawn. No way. He claimed he wanted to let the professionals do their job. Nuh-uh. He didn't want to get involved. Yeah, I'm not buying it. A lot of Mark's behavior around the time that Dylan disappeared was odd. But then again, he was an odd type of guy. But you don't pull up a lawn chair, sip in your coffee all relaxed? Like you're not sitting out there bird watching? By this time, Elaine, Corey, and Mike had all arrived in Durango, and they were out physically searching for him. Yeah, you would be frantic. You would be sick to your stomach. Yeah. Elaine said there were times where she was like just on the road calling out his name because she didn't know what else to do, but she just needed to do something. Yeah. As a parent, you're compelled to go and look. Usually, investigators are having to beat the parents away, saying, please let us do our job. Right. And even if he was maybe paralyzed with fear, not knowing what to do, you're not lounging in a lounge chair, sipping on your coffee, enjoying your little morning. Not at all. His odd behavior, along with others' suspicions of him, had investigators alerted that Mark was a potential suspect in the disappearance of his son. And it wasn't just Elaine and Corey that were pointing fingers at him. His neighbor told police that the lights in Mark's house were on at 2 a.m. the night that Dylan had arrived. And this was uncharacteristic of Mark's behavior when he was home. In the morning, all the lights were off when she got up around 6 a.m. And remember, he said he had been up at 5.30 and was moving around the house. But the neighbor said that, no, all the lights were off in his house by then. Mark's oldest son from his first marriage, Brandon, flies in to help look for his stepbrother. Yeah, he's going to look. Mm -hmm. Not sit and drink his little coffee. Right. But he does go out driving with his dad and his uncle. On Middle Mountain Road, Mark abruptly turns the truck around and says, Dylan's not up here, to his son and his brother. Brandon describes his dad as having no emotion while they searched for Dylan. What? How do you know, you stinky little imbecile? It's because you murdered him and you know exactly where his body is. Right? A parent is going to want to check every little nook and cranny and corner. And what makes it more interesting is that everybody knows that that Middle Mountain Road was soon going to be closed because it always closes down in the winter. Oh, yeah. So he's thinking, oh, it's perfect. I'll leave him out here. The animals will get him or the elements. Mm -hmm. Betsy, Mark's first wife, called police a few days after Dylan had disappeared and told them that she was suspicious of him. Oh, During the interview with police, Betsy said that during their divorce, there were several times that Mark had told her that he would kill the kids before he let her have them. And once, when they had camped together as a family 20 years earlier, Mark had remarked that if he ever had to get rid of a body, he would leave it out in the mountains. So did they ever do any initial search of the home when he was first reported missing? They do a search of the home looking for Dylan's things and kind of clues to where he had gone to, but there's no thorough investigation until November 29th, 10 days after he went missing. Oh, which is lots of time to cover up any evidence. Mm -hmm. That's unfortunate. Yeah. On November 29th, despite massive search efforts, Dylan still had not been found. The FBI had been called in to consult on the case a few days earlier and had interviewed Mark twice previously collecting both oral and written statements. During the interview on the 26th, Mark places suspicion on Elaine. Big surprise. The next day when the agent shows up in the early afternoon, it appears like Mark has either been drinking or is super distraught. His eyes were red, his face was swollen, and he looks all ruddy looking. 
And during the second interview, he held onto this pillow and he keeps on saying, this might have been the last thing that Dylan ever touched. Dylan didn't. There was no scent of him. Nope. On November 29th, an official search warrant is executed on Mark's house by the La Plata County Sheriff's Office with the help of the FBI, and he is interviewed again. On the way to the station, leaving the crime scene investigators at his house to do their work with their big van Mark FBI parked out front, Mark's mannerism was viewed as odd by the investigating officer. Video and audio of his interactions have been examined multiple times in hindsight with the same conclusion. He tells these long-winded, super detailed stories about insignificant stuff, but is super vague about any specific questions. And again, he tries to come across as this overly good father. Like, oh, we never fought. We never had any arguments. Which is going to be disproven in text messages. Exactly. And usually when people are telling stories like that, they're lying. Absolutely. He could be super detailed about things that didn't matter, but he shares very little detail about the questions that they're actually trying to ask him. After being told by investigators that the search of his house was going to be very thorough, Mark's story changes a little bit from his previous statements that he had made. For the first time in 10 days, he mentions that Dylan might have been bleeding the night he arrived. Oh, in case they find blood. Mm -hmm. At first, Mark says Dylan had an oozing cold sore on his lip when he arrived. When the agent says, well, that should be pretty easy to verify, Mark changes his story to say that while tossing the Nerf football around, it hit Dylan in the face and he bled a little bit, but nothing serious. So he's changing his story, which is a huge red flag. Yeah, hogwash. Mm -hmm. He tells police the morning of the 19th that he spoke with Dylan briefly to determine that he wasn't getting up to go to Ryan's house. Then he went to his work office to straighten out a paycheck. Then he went to his lawyer's office and then the bank to mail a support check to Elaine. Huh. Was there video surveillance supporting this? There were people at his office that confirmed that he was there and his lawyer confirmed that he was there. And a check was mailed, which in and of itself is super weird. Why wouldn't he just send the check with Dylan? I think after killing his son, which I'm assuming he did, he just wanted to make it look like, oh, I'm such a good dad. Look, I just sent my child support check. If I was going to kill him, I'd know I didn't need to send it. I think it's super fishy because Mark and Elaine have been fighting over what the support payments were going to be, and it was still in the court being decided, the actual amount. And up until this point, he hadn't sent her any money. But all of a sudden, the morning of the 19th, he has no problem sending her a check in the mail instead of sending it home with his son. Yeah. And I wonder, what's this guilt money? I think it's like covering his tracks, trying to make himself look better than he is. Right. Look, I support my son. I have yeah. no problem paying. Yeah, we were tossing the football. Mm -hmm. We've never fought a day in our life. Oh, I just mailed a check. Yeah. Look at my halo, how bright it shines. <laughs> Christy doesn't like this dirt bag. <laughs> nope. The agent tries to get Mark to theorize about what he thinks happened to Dylan and even gives a suggestion that it might have been an animal attack, which Mark then latches onto with enthusiasm. At the end of the interview, the agent starts to try the tactic of... It's better to fess up now and tell where Dylan is. To that, after a lengthy pause, Mark says, quote, I've got to think about myself. With that statement, the interview ends. I've got to think about myself. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry, Mark. That's all you've been doing mm -hmm. is thinking about yourself. While the interview didn't reveal any concrete leads to follow, the search of Mark's property that day was a different story. 
evidence of blood was found in multiple different sites around his living room that had first not been visible to the naked eye. Minute traces of blood were found on the corner of the coffee table, the love seat, the couch cushion, on the floor in front of the love seat, and on the floor under the coffee table, which had now been covered up with a rug. So there was no blood on the rug, but there was on the floor underneath of the rug. Oh, that's more blood than you get from an oozing cold sore or a ball to the face. Well, it was only very, very small amounts. And even the spots that they had found, it was almost like it had been diluted. This blood evidence would be collected and tested two different times, years apart. Dylan was a match for what was found on the love seat and was a possible contributor to all the other sites along with Mark and Corey. Interestingly, Mark's changing story conveniently matched the evidence that they had just found. Oh yeah, he he bled a little bit because he got hit in the face. And so there were some drops of blood that I cleaned up. Unfortunately, the traces were small and in no distinct pattern, so no concrete theories could be made on how it got there. The timeline for how long the blood had been there could also not be determined. Blood, and even more so DNA evidence, which would be collected in a future investigation, can be found long after the presence of a person has been in the room. It's actually really amazing that the science has come so far and is getting so good that such small blood samples can be tested. Touch DNA, while fascinating, can make crime scenes harder to understand and for conclusions to be made, especially when the victim and the suspect have spent considerable time at the scene, because there's no way to tell how long that trace DNA could have been there for. Yeah, it complicates things. Mm -hmm. The only certainty was, though, that it had to have happened after 2011 because Mark had had a house fire. And insurance had done an extensive renovation on the house, which included new living room floors. Okay. And so now they have to go into trying to prove, did Dylan ever bleed in this living room on any of his trips to his dad? Which hadn't been very many. That's right. So while they did know traces of Dylan's blood were found in the living room, they couldn't say that it was because something nefarious had happened to him there, or if he had merely scraped a knee and rubbed it along the couch. None of the evidence was a smoking gun. It was circumstantial, or it could be explained away. The finding, though, did put more speculation on Mark, who just denied more and more that he was involved. This whole time, Dylan is still missing. As November drew to a close, the Middle Mountain Road next to Mark's house was closed for the season because the snow and ice made it too unsafe to travel on. December faded to January, and then into February, and the search for what happened to Dylan continued. And his father would have to drive past that road turnout. How would that not riddle you with more guilt every time you looked at it? For Dirtbag Mark, it doesn't. I can't imagine how any decent human being could drive past that road and not be torn up with guilt and confess. Yeah. But he still outright denies it. Like even every time it snows, thinking that's landing on my son's body. Mm Mm-hmm. The search for Dylan drew enough attention that the story was picked up by the Dr. Phil show. In February of 2013, Elaine, Corey, and Mark all appear on the Dr. Phil show, and no one seems to hide anything from the cameras as they all throw accusations at each other. But definitely, Mark comes off looking suspicious. Mark, when confronted about the diaper pictures, claims that he had fabricated them and planted them there for his sons to find to get a rise out of them. You don't fabricate pictures like that to get a rise out of your children. 
because those were very sexualized. If you wanted to like pretend, you would have a piece of poo on a fork pretending that you're going to take a bite. Right? Not it's smeared all over you. No, you're not dressing up in lingerie and making the poses that he's making. Yeah, they're disturbing. Mm Mm-hmm. He was also unable to take the initial polygraph test offered by the show because he had been drinking the night before. When the show offers to repeat the test, he refuses. It wasn't a big surprise, though, that he would refuse to take a polygraph test because the first polygraph test that he had agreed to take did not go very well. Elaine and Mark had both agreed to take a polygraph test a few weeks after Dylan's disappearance. Elaine would later say that she was told she passed hers. Mark's test was unable to be completed because he refused to answer questions succinctly in a timely fashion without rambling off topic. Oh, no big surprise. No. Amid all of Mark's strange behavior and the fighting between Dylan's family members, Dylan remained missing for seven months. Oh. Police desperate to find him even investigated tips from psychics that were reported to them. In June 2013, the mountain pass was deemed safe enough for the search parties to comb the area. Elaine and Mike temporarily moved to the area to be present for the search. Elaine arranged to have several items of Dylan's brought from their house in Colorado Springs to be used for a scent for the search and rescue dogs. Corey quits his job so that he too can be there full time. Extended family members and a multitude of volunteers assemble to search for Dylan. See, that's what people who care about a victim do. They don't sit on their porch and drink coffee and go to bed and turn out the lights. Mm -hmm. And that's what you'd expect most parents to do. But that wasn't what Mark did. He makes the explanation for not participating in the search to say that he didn't want to be the one to find Dylan's body. Again, it's all about him. Right. And up until this point, there's people still holding out hope that he's going to be found alive. Oh, wow. Shortly before the long-awaited search of Middle Mountain Road, Mark was observed by Dylan's stepfather, Mike, to be doing his own personal searches for Dylan. He was observed to be driving down from Middle Mountain Road before the pass officially opened for the season. This was odd because the main focus of all the previous searches had always been in a completely different direction towards the lake based on the story that Mark insisted was true. The search that took place in June along Middle Mountain Road was labor-intensive, often with volunteers on their hands and knees over massive areas of forest. Wow. Heartbreakingly, on June 22, 2013, not long into the search of the mountainous area, a Nike Jordan shoe was found, a youth size 7, not far from the entrance gate along with scraps of underwear, earbuds, and scraps of what was believed to be a t-shirt that Dylan had packed, and a single feel of sock was found. Oh. Corey identified several of these items. He said he knew that these were his brothers because he was very familiar with them. Being the oldest, predominantly raised by a single mom, there were many caregiving tasks that fell to him, so he was familiar with Dylan's things. Some of the clothing he had even purchased for his younger brother. The area looked like it could have been a dump site for a body, so a cadaver dog was brought in. The search dog was able to identify several areas where bones were found over a series of days. Roughly 20% of Dylan's body was found, and there were several indicators of animal-like activity on the bones. Police found what they believed to be a digit in animal feces in the same area. Dylan's remains were found roughly 100 yards off of an ATV trail that ran along Middle Mountain Road, about 8 miles from Mark's house. Not long after being found, the remains were confirmed to be that of Dylan's. From the fragments of bones that were found, it became clear that Dylan was dead. 
Oh my goodness. From the bones that they found, there was still no way to know what happened to Dylan. There was no conclusive evidence for the cause of death and the animal activity on the bones and their scattering helped sell Mark's emerging story that Dylan had left the house and had been attacked by an animal. After finding some of Dylan's remains, despite claiming to be blindsided by the news, Mark's odd expressions of grief continued. During a candlelight vigil at Eagle Lake, held just days after the discovery of remains, Mark handed out pre-made business cards that talked about Dylan being dead and looking for information. What? Mm-hmm. Then, on an outing with his oldest son Brandon and Corey and his brother David, the four of them were discussing what more could be done to find the rest of Dylan's remains. It was really unsettling to the family to have found so little of him. Oh, yeah. The conversation covers differing ideas about abduction and animal attacks and what could have led to Dylan's demise. And I can't imagine not knowing what happened to your loved one. To find out that Dylan had died would be heartbreaking enough. But then the whole uncertainty of not knowing what happened would be so difficult. And I think it's only natural to speculate. So it seemed like these four men, that's what they were doing during this conversation. Yeah. During this conversation, Mark oddly mentions blunt force trauma on four different occasions and claims that without finding the skull, no one will ever know what happened. Brandon was so unsettled by how his father had discussed these things, he reached out to investigators to share the experience. Brandon later told his wife that it was like his dad was telling him what happened to Dylan. Thank goodness he trusted his gut and went to the police with that. Mm -hmm. During that same conversation, Mark had made a very awkward statement that he knew where Dylan was. And then when the others looked at him, he continued with, quote, in his heart. Hmm. So it's almost like he slipped up and then had to backtrack and fill in in his heart. Yeah. In August 2013 and February 2014, a human remains detection dog named Molly was brought in to search Mark's house. Molly and her handler, Karen Gummon, were nationally tested and had an accuracy rate of over 90%. Oh, wow. Molly was a pretty smart dog. Molly indicated the presence of large source cadaver scents in various locations of Mark's home, including the living room and the washing machine. Molly also indicated a cadaver scent on the clothes that Mark had worn the night he picked Dylan up from the airport and in the bed of Mark's white Dodge pickup truck. He could smell it from the clothes even after they had been washed a bunch of times? Yep. That's remarkable. It is. There's a lot of discussion about, yeah, right, this dog can't actually do this. But she was nationally tested. Wow. And it's just sad that this is taking so many years. I can't imagine what Elaine and Corey went through. No. And Mark gets to just walk free during all this time. Mm -hmm. Even his sons from the other marriage are suspicious of him. And his first ex-wife, that says a lot. These are people that have lived with him, and they believe he's capable of doing something like this. Right. People that are supposed to love him the most. Right. During one of the searches of his truck, the debit card belonging to Dylan was found in a briefcase, as well as the itinerary for his trip to Durango. Mark had previously said that he did not have any items belonging to Dylan, and that Dylan had taken everything with him. Despite all of his claims of innocence, Mark is suspect number one but it didn't change the fact that the investigation findings are curious but not conclusive. The lack of conclusive evidence didn't stop social media pages from popping up and crying for justice. Friends of Elaine had launched a Find Dylan campaign on social media, which eventually turned into a Seeking Justice for Dylan campaign. On the website, there are a lot of comments calling for Mark's arrest. 
a lawyer representing Mark, made the comment that the social media user's lust for Mark, Redwine's blood, has far outpaced the workings of the justice system, almost since the day that Dylan went missing. Mark claimed that he was made to work on the road at the time as a long-haul trucker because it wasn't safe for him to stay in his home. On May 3, 2014, just after 2 a.m., Mark was taken to the local hospital after being found wandering the streets. He told police that he was feeling paranoid due to fear that he was being stalked by haters and monitored by police. More than likely, though, his behavior was exasperated by the fact that he was admittedly self-medicating with alcohol. Mark maintained his innocence and claimed through his lawyer that his home, car, and belongings had been searched repeatedly and that he would have been cleared if it had not been for the media debacle and all the evidence that they're finding. Yeah. On May 20th, another episode of Dr. Phil aired, with Corey Elaine, Mike, and Mark participating by calling in. More accusations are made, and Mark continues to plead his innocence. Following the show, Elaine filed a wrongful death lawsuit on June 29th against Mark, and then he filed a counter-lawsuit. Both lawsuits were eventually dismissed, and neither actions led to any more answers about Dylan's death. Those answers would still be months away, and eerily, it would be the discovery of Dylan's skull that would provide them, just like Mark had predicted. And let me guess, he was bludgeoned to death. Mm -hmm. Over two years after the first remains were found, Dylan's partial skull was found over five miles from the first discovery site. Located further down the Middle Mountain Road, 1,500 feet over the top of a mountain and 500 feet down into the valley off the trail. A married couple hiking off trail in the wilderness area northeast of Valcido Reservoir were the ones that found the skull. The husband originally picked up the skull remains, mostly it was just the back part of the skull, and asked his wife what she thought it was. His wife, a true crime buff, immediately answered, that's a human skull. Not completely sold on the idea, though, her husband dropped what he found back into what he described as an animal den, and the two continued on their hike. What? Mm-hmm. It wasn't until after they returned from their hike that they thought about the possible connection to the missing boy from almost three years earlier. Oh, wow. They contacted police to report their finding. It would take a search party another couple days to locate the skull where it had been dropped. It was a remote area and it was through really difficult terrain. And because they had just dropped it, they couldn't remember the exact spot where they found this kind of animal den or collection of bones. Right. And I think you would just be caught so off guard that you wouldn't really, even if it's subconsciously, want to believe that this was a human skull that you had just found. Right. And it's not like it has the face part of the skull. It's right. just the back part. Forensic experts would later testify that the skull had what appeared to be two areas that indicated blunt force trauma hidden under the marks made by animals. Sorry not to ask such a graphic question, no. but did that mean that the animals had dismembered the body? Like taken pieces of it and... But there was no evidence that he had been dismembered by his dad? There is evidence. Oh. The skull also had two distinct marks that could have been created by a knife around the time of death. Like you had speculated, there were others that believed Mark had removed his son's head as a possible way to hide evidence. Again, though, the finding didn't leave any physical connection to Mark. So they knew that this had happened, but there is no saying that Mark had done it. Right. In August 2016, another tip was received from the watchdogs that kept their eyes on Mark's activities. 
And Mark's claims that he was being watched were truthful. He was being closely watched by a whole bunch of people. Good. The tip said that Mark had disposed of several items into a dumpster. When police investigated, they found pictures of Dylan from the time he was 10 to 13 years old, pictures of Elaine, and an old driver's license. This was after he had publicly criticized the La Plata County Sheriff's Office for not doing enough to find more of his son's remains. At the time, he had claimed to be planning to organize a seven-day community search for the other 80% of Dylan that still hadn't been found. It was organized for the same month that he had been found dumping pictures in the dumpster. Yeah, that's very odd. It is. It's just bizarre behavior. And why are you throwing out pictures of your son? Right? Who you've just found the remains. You know that he's dead. And you're going to throw away his pictures? I think he just couldn't stand being around them. Because if you're not guilty, you're clinging to those pictures. Mm-hmm. I think it was a guilt reaction. He couldn't look at his son's image anymore. Yeah, it speaks volumes. Mm-hmm. Finally, on July 17th, 2017... The La Plata County Grand Jury issued an indictment for Mark Redwine for the murder of his son, Dylan. Mark was arrested for second-degree murder and child abuse on July 22nd while driving a transport truck in Bellingham, Washington at 2 a.m. in the morning. When he was informed that he had an arrest warrant in Colorado, he acted surprised and said he had no idea what that was about. One of the drivers that he had recently trained said that he found it hard to believe that Mark could pull off the perfect murder because of how disheveled and disorganized Mark seemed to be. Mark was extradited back to Colorado and held on a $1 million cash bond only. The trial would take just as long to come to fruition as Mark's arrest. What? Because COVID hits. Oh, yeah. In a pretrial statement, Mark said that he was innocent of all charges and called the trial a miscarriage of justice, a fake conviction, a sham trial, claiming that, quote, I take this circumstance very seriously and want to make it clear that I too have lost a child I love more than life itself. I will fight for true justice, not for myself, but for Dylan. What a dirtbag. The trial was delayed the first time in 2019 when a member of the defense team was arrested for assault. Oh dear. Then, in November of 2020, a mistrial had to be declared because the defense team contracted COVID and could not continue in a timely manner and so they had to declare it a whole mistrial. Eventually, a second trial was organized for June 2021. Wow. The trial lasted five weeks. The defense relied heavily on the argument that you couldn't prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that it hadn't been an animal attack that killed Dylan, that Mark was just a simple guy working in the oil field and wouldn't have had enough time or knowledge to clean up a murder scene so effectively. They presented the case that Mark had been found guilty a long time ago by social media, despite there being any evidence, and that he too was a victim, unable to mourn for his son because of all the accusations. To address Mark's claims about an animal attack, the prosecution brought in wildlife experts to testify that bears would have been in their final preparations for hibernation, if not already in hibernation, and that no animal inhabiting the area would have transported a skull that far from the other remains. And mm. just the skull. That's interesting. The prosecution also presented a witness, Kathy Berry, to strengthen their claim that Dylan's knowledge of the pictures would have made Mark angry. She testified that during a hostile encounter with Mark outside of his home after Dylan's disappearance, she had referred to the pictures, and in a flash, Mark's demeanor had changed. 
She described Mark as having cartoon-like eyes that were bulging out of his head and that she was so scared she fled immediately. He had come at her truck with a log. Ooh. The prosecution argued that Mark's behavior was consistent with second-degree murder because he knowingly killed Dylan with injuries not just in one place, but in two places. His motive had been rage over his deteriorating relationship with Dylan and not wanting to lose him to his mother and his brother's influence. The prosecution believed that Dylan had never made it to November 19th, that he and his father had had an altercation that night, and in his rage, Mark had killed his son. On July 16, 2021, a 12-person jury found Mark, now age 60, guilty. At the sentencing hearing on October 8th, the judge said, quote, I have trouble remembering a convicted criminal defendant that has shown such an utter lack of remorse for his criminal behavior. He continued to say that Mark's efforts to conceal Dylan's body and lie about what happened caused suffering for Dylan's family and the entire community. Mark was sentenced to the maximum. 48 years, followed by five years of mandatory parole. He is currently carrying out a sentence in Arkansas Valley Correctional Facility. His earliest eligibility for parole is October 28, 2052, at the age of 90. Mark filed his first appeal on November 22, in 2021, and maintains that he is still completely innocent. Since the conviction, Elaine has become an activist against family violence and works with a group to help families whose children have disappeared. In May of this year, she was in Washington telling Dylan's story, and I cannot imagine what it would be like for her or Dylan's other family members to go through what they did. Well, and especially knowing that her son didn't want to go and she had to let him. Mm -hmm. This is a perfect example of a case where those laws should be changed it was heartbreaking to watch the attorney that had told Elaine that she needed to send him testify at the trial oh. to see her break down over the guilt she had over that counsel that she gave Elaine. Yeah, and it's not her fault. She was following the law, mm -hmm. but that would stick with you forever. It looks like it will. And that is the case of the despicable and deceitful dirtbag Mark Redwine, who cowardly hid his crimes for years and still refuses to admit responsibility. What a disgusting dirtbag. So gross. So you're, you're adamant that he did it, right? Oh, 100%, 100% I believe that he did it. Do you have any doubt? Well, well, no, only the doubt that I can't even imagine how somebody would do this and carry on the way he did afterwards. Like, I don't know how you keep up that facade for so many years and not just fess up. And I don't believe that he actually set out to kill his son. Oh, no, I think it was in the heat of the moment. Mm -hmm. But if you're willing to threaten it, you've already put that into your subconscious. Right. And then he followed it through. Yep. And then how do you remove your own son's skull to hide your evidence? Because he only cares about himself. Yeah. And he says, oh, I love him more than my own life. No, you don't. Mm -hmm. You love your life more. And that's why you killed your son. And that's why you didn't fess up. Right. And to this day, that just adds... Insult injury. He got to have way more freedom than he deserved. Mm -hmm. I hate it. It makes them that much more of a dirtbag when they don't take responsibility. It's so true. Well, you weren't kidding, Melissa. That case did get me riled. I do hate that dirtbag. And I'm going to have another one next week that you can hate as well. Until then. See ya. Bye.
don't know if you'll still be happy at the end of it. Sorry. It's just like what we were talking about. And I have a case coming up for us that we're going to do a wrongful conviction. And I'm going to be justified in all of the times that I'm like, whoa, maybe he didn't do it. Hold on. I just got to take a breath and calm down. But before you get any ideas about the motive of, but before you get any ideas about, I can do this. Holy cow. You can do it. You can do it. But before you get any any ideas, Christy. (laughs) I just got the mom eyes. (laughs) I'm using my hands to talk. Oh my goodness. What is happening to me? There's just so many things going wrong right now. Maybe all the sugar right before was not a good idea. (laughs) Oops. Sorry about that. Sorry, you're going to tell me what's on the pictures, right? Yeah, I'm going to. Okay. Totally. I was like, do I need to ask right now? Because I no. really want to know. Okay. I'm actually going to show them to you. No. Oh. <laughs> My eyes are burning. <laughs> it's pretty graphic. Wash your eyeballs. Oh. What can I say that's not going to be offensive at this point? So what? He's walking down the mall and someone farts and he's getting turned on? Maybe. I don't know how it works. But... So cheeky. That was the best comeback. I Can you imagine Elaine thinking, how long has this been going on? Was he doing this when we were married? And I kissed him right after he was eating poop? Oh, that would be a gross thought. Okay, I'm going to show you a picture so you can visualize what's happening. I love this. I need a new picture in my brain. On the, on the November 29th, on November 29th, an official... Maybe his face was red because he ate bad poop. Maybe. He had an allergic reaction to smearing it all over his face. (laughs) It got in his eye. (sighs) Yeah. Hey, we're live, pal. And we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now, but we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.